This is an audio essay recording of A Reflection of the Sun, written by Sydney Harvey. This audio essay is brought to you by Sydney Harvey. This audio recording was produced by Sydney Harvey. This reading is performed by Sydney Harvey. A Reflection of the Sun. The sun is nurturing. It gives us natural light. It illuminates the world around us and heats it up. The sun gives us energy and supplies us with nutrition. It helps us determine the time of day and what direction we're going. The sun is oppressive. It makes us sweat. It makes our bodies hot and confuses our minds. It can be irritating. It shines in our eyes and makes our homes uncomfortably warm. It is magnificently large and we are trapped in its gravitational field. The sun is the reason the earth moves. It is the reason we evolve and grow. The sun gives us a sense of routine and stability. No matter what happens to us today, we are conditioned to believe that the sun will set and rise again. Our lives revolve around the sun. In many ways, it is an essential component of our natural environment. The sun and all forms of light are also essential components of the artistic medium of film. It is through the capturing of light that the film strip is able to imprison prison its inceptions. <laughs> imprisons its perceptions. There are going to be several mistakes um, with this reading. Uh, this is true, of course, even if we are using a digital camera. If there's no light, then there are no defined objects in space of which we point the camera, and therefore without light, there's nothing moving in a moving image. Without any presence of light, there would be only indistinguishable darkness. While light is an essential component of filmmaking, it is often not critically considered by the viewer of the films. We overlook how lighting contributes to the construction of a film's mise-en-scene. The directors that are often thought of as masters of the art form vary in style and technique, but one thing they do agree on is the importance of lighting. Watch any Kubrick, Spielberg, Fellini, Kurosawa, Malick, Hitchcock, or Bergman film closely, and you may notice that the lighting of each shot reveals information about the story. Directors and cinematographers have figured out that not only is light good for making the objects in the scene more visible, it is itself a tool that can be helpful, that can help filmmakers suggest what specific objects should be more visible, therefore more important. What objects should be cast in shadow for mystery or danger? Also, light can be used as a method of suggesting the emotional intentions of the movie and manipulating a visual tone. With all the advanced tools and lighting techniques that filmmakers have developed over the years, many auteur directors still prefer the simple and natural light of the sun to illuminate their shots. Some even go as far as to making the natural light a feature of the film. For instance, director Terrence Malick is so captivated by natural sunlight that his actors know to move within the direction of the sun if they want their scene to make it to the final cut of the film. In the period film, Barry London, 1975, director Stanley Kubrick executed an innovative approach of only using natural light. In this approach, he challenged himself to only use sunlight or candlelight as an homage to the film's time period, the 18th century, before electricity was created. The sun is also predominantly featured in his monumental film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, 1968. For director Ingmar Bergman, the Swedish sun is almost a character of its own in many of his films. Summer of Monica, 1956. Winterlight, 1963. Through a Glass Darkly, 1961. Director Kenneth Anger even devotes an entire short film to sun worship, Lucifer Rising, 1972. This paper will explore a philosophical argument about the use of natural sunlight in films. I will argue that directors use sunlight as a visual metaphor to induce a sublime experience from the viewer to elevate the narrative. While it is more efficient in terms of time management and finances to use electric lights, sunlight creates a successful emotional effect on the viewer, placing them in contemplation of the relationship between nature, humanity, and humility. Essentially, I am concerned with what it is that the capturing of sunlight accomplishes in these works of art that a light bulb can't. I will develop the argument in three phases. First, I will provide a brief explanation of the relationship between humans and the sun. In this section, I will develop the connection between the sun and the sublime. 
To accomplish this, I will use the work on humanity's emotional relationship with nature by Edmund Burke, Immanuel Kant, Arthur Schopenhauer, and contemporary philosophers. I will then explain how sunlight is used in films as a visual metaphor for humility. I will use film analysis and the work in previous section to make this claim. I will end the paper by exploring psychological research that has been conducted about the connection between experiences of sublime and humility. I will connect this psychological research with the previous two sections of the paper, concluding with a better understanding of the powerful psychological effect that the use of sunlight has on the viewer of a film. Part one, the sublime experience of the sun. The sublime is commonly categorized as an emotional experience in which a person is overwhelmed with the power of a natural environment. This definition varies depending on which philosopher you are considering, but the basic components seem to include a human being and an external object that are real but not fully comprehensible. The object can be directly in front of you, like a roaring 10,000-foot waterfall or a 2,000-mile canyon, just as the object can be contemplated in the mind through a representation of it, like the breeze of an ocean or the heat of the sun. Even though we do not see the ocean, when we feel its moist breeze or smell it, we can experience sublimity from it as we can imagine the grandeur of its power. We can become overwhelmed and horrified in this experience because we realize that the ocean is so much more powerful than ourselves. But that representation is paired with excitement and stimulating pleasure in being fully immersed and contemplating an object beyond our conceptual capabilities. In the history of the sublime, Edmund Burke, 1957, Immanuel Kant, 1990, and Arthur Schopenhauer, 1844, are thought of as the philosophical leaders of the term, when in reference to the environment. These philosophers were interested in the sublime aesthetically, how to find it in physical objects. They placed the sublime in comparison to the concept of beauty. For instance, if we find an object to be beautiful, we take pleasure in that beauty. However, there seems to be other pleasure in aesthetic experience that may not deal with something beautiful. It might come from a terrifying object. For Burke, the sublime is a physical sensation and the horror is accompanied by pleasure in knowing that what we perceive is purely aesthetic and removed from actually harming us. Kant produced a more metaphysical and spiritual understanding of the sublime. For him, the pleasure derives from our realizing that there are entities in the world that are beyond our rational understanding, and yet we are still able to experience them. So while you are terrified about the mystery and greatness of the ocean, you find pleasure in knowing that there are things out there that are beyond your possibility of knowledge. You are glad that there are things that are greater than you out there. On the other hand, Kant's understanding of the beautiful is found in the actual object, in its perceptual features. Beauty is only within the boundaries of the object. The sublime is boundless. The experience is found in us and we place it in the object. The sublime is an experience about an object that represents boundlessness. For Schopenhauer, he distinguishes the sublime and the beautiful through the experience with the self, but seems to be a bit of a combination between Kant and Burke's definition. By this I mean that Schopenhauer's concept of beauty and sublime seems to be both physical and phenomenological. When we encounter beauty, the self is in reflection as a separate entity from the object. It simply observes the object and the idea underlining the object. The body and our perceptions are distinctly separate from the object. When we experience the sublime, the object is so powerful and grand that we are immersed in the object. We lose a sense of ourself and what differentiates us from the object. In a sublime state, we are elevated and in a sense, we combine ourselves with what we are able to comprehend of the horrifying, majestic, natural surroundings and that loss of self is pleasurable. We find pleasurable in lessening our ego. Sandra Shapshay, 2021, has reconstructed two accounts of the sublime, which takes into consideration the work done by Burke, Kant, and Schopenhauer, reflecting it into what she calls a thin and thick account of the sublime. The thin version of sublime is considered with the affective arousal of the experience. This focuses on the experience of what it is you find to be sublime and how the body feels when it is in this state. 
The thick sublime state involves conceptualization and seems to be the common experience of human beings in a subtle state of the sun. The thick sublime involves the effect of arousal and adds to this experience an intellectual play of ideas, which typically involves a relationship between human beings and the environment. Thick sublime experiences are both emotional and intellectual. Even though we can look up and see the sun, if feel its heat on our skin and visibly see its sun rays shining through the clouds, we are quite far removed from actually perceiving the majority of the sun. Unlike a waterfall or a great red oak tree, in order to immerse ourselves in the magnitude of the sun, we need to rely more on our conceptualization and scientific knowledge to experience sublimity towards it. However, it seems possible to have a thin sublime experience of the sun, as you view a glorious sunset or a majestic <laughs> or a mystic sun rising through a foggy morning. But maybe not, as that could be more of an experience of pure beauty. The power of the sun is diminished as it is purely a visible experience and seems to be more about the beauty of the moment and not the horrifying power of the sun. In contrast, if I was sailing on a small boat and surrounded by only by ocean, I would have the visual of an open body of water, but my body would also be trapped in the motion of the waves. My skin would feel the spray of the unruly sea and the noise of water puckering up in constant motion would consume my soundscape. All of these perceptual components would produce the sublime without my mind needing to do much work. I would be physically submerged. One of the common attributes of a sublime experience is the conceptualization of grandeur of nature. Environmental aesthetic philosopher Alan Carlson, 2008, argues that our aesthetic experience with nature is a matter of scientific understanding, that to develop an appropriate appreciation, there necessarily needs to be an understanding of the natural history and science of the object. This is probably no, there is probably no better representation of this theory than the human relationship with the sun. As it is 93 million miles away from us, we really, we rely heavily on our development science. This is harder than it looks, people. <laughs> we, develop, we rely heavily on our developed science about the sun in order to experience its grandeur. From our point of view on Earth, it appears to be quite small and is not always visible. For instance, while reading this essay, you might not even be able to see the sun. You're probably not on a mountaintop feeling your skin warming in its light or even watching a film featuring characters sweating with heat exhaustion from its powerful flares in the desert. However, you can have a purely intellectual experience of sublimity. Being in awe of the majest majesty is simply revealed through a scientific explanation of the creation and function of our sun. It seems that with the sublimeness of the sun, it is more dependent on the horror of what the sun represents to us, namely our very small and insignificant place in our solar system. The sun represents to us not only our relationship and dependence on it, but it also represents our relationship with all of nature on the planet as everything on our planet is equally at the will of our sun's heat and light. Shapshay compares the work the mind does in thick sublime experience to that the work it does when considering a metaphor. She explains that the connection to the environment in general, hmm, she explains that the metaphoric work lies in the conceptualization of the sun experience of the human connection to the environment in general. When we have a thick sublime experience, we feel the emotional state of sublime, and then we try to construct a reason or meaning from that state. Typically, this meaning is that of a play of ideas concerning humanity and the nature, natural environment. This comparison of the thick sublime is a metaphor. This comparison of the thick sublime to a metaphor is helpful when considering the sublimity of the sun, especially when we begin to consider the sun in film as a visual metaphor to inspire thoughts of humility. Often this thick sublimity produces the experience of a lowered sense of self. If we encounter an object in nature that is much greater and powerful than us, and we become overwhelmed and in that immersion, we seek meaning that we may find that accompanying our feeling of terror and pleasure is the sense 
that the problems in our lives seem small in comparison to the vastness of the earth. Hmm. Archangelic, Do Doic, and Spurdutai. I have never pronounced those names out loud. I just realized that. Explore the selflessness. We'll just we'll just call it the Doic group. Explore the selflessness experiences of the sublime in relation to the beauty. Um, those three names belong to researchers, um, I think psychologists, and um, they wrote a paper in 2019, and that's what the sentence is referring to. They wrote a paper about the sublime in relation to beauty. Um, and now back to the recording. <laughs> uh, this is a quote from that paper. The sublime is, in fact, a relational property involving the self. Blurs the boundary between the self and the world. Now we hear people on my stairwell. This is, this is an experiment. This is what happens when you have an experiment, people. Necessarily immerses <laughs> in a way in which mere beauty experiences are not. Um, end of the quote. That ends the quote. There seems to be no more powerful sublime experience in our solar system than that of the magnitude of the sun, as it is literally over 99% of our solar system's mass and is the center and cause of it. As we move forward in the next section of the paper and develop our discussion of sublime experiences of the sun in film, I want to briefly make clear what this past section has accomplished. Our definition of the sublime experience will combine Shapshay's theory of the thick sublime with the work on selflessness by Arcangeli et al. Therefore, a sublime experience towards the sun would produce a metaphoric understanding of the sun as a symbol for human humility. We can feel humbled in the presence and or contemplation of the powerful boundless sun. As stated earlier, most of the sublime experience is based on what the sun represents and our knowledge of the science concerning the sun. It is a visual metaphor in the sky of our insignificant lives. In the following section, I will discuss visual metaphors in film and how our sublime emotions towards the sun are used to further develop the narrative. Part two, the audience and the sun. The 1953 Ingmar Bergman film Summer of Monica opens with a series of shots of the sun gleaming through winter fog and shimmering on the cold, still Swedish water. This is a simple montage, and most viewers see no reason to read into the first images presented to them in a film. But this series of images acts as a visual metaphor to set the viewer up for the main themes of the film. That being the changing of seasons as the changing in life and love. The film is a story of a young man who meets a young woman in the winter, falls in love with her over the summer, and is out of love with her by the time winter comes back around. The sun represents in the first column, and this is referring to the grid of images in the paper, is a winter sun, almost hidden barely peeking through the clouds. In the winter season, because of the Earth's tilt, the northern hemisphere leans further away from the sun. The more northern location, the less sun you receive. However, the opposite is true in the summer, as the tilt leans in the other direction, and the more northern you are, the more sun, sunlight you receive. The second horizontal column features the sun in the Swedish summer from the second act of the film. This knowledge about the sun's participation in our season is common and known by every viewer of this film. They are aware that the Swedish sun can be particularly absent or vividly present depending on the season. This knowledge allows the sun to act as a visual metaphor for the absence of love in the first act and the vivid presence of love in the second act. The sun is so synonymous with the changing of life and love that in the third act, um, seeing the horizontal column three, the film overlays the sun shimmering on the water over the main character's face in the winter as he remembers back to his life in the summer. In this ending montage, the sun acts as the link between the present moment and the past. The sun is the character's emotional warmth as he looks back on the love he used to have. 
This series of images suggests to the viewer that the changing of the season and the changes in interpersonal relationships share a dependence on the sun and on human memory. The sun puts us in a reflection of the sublime. We cannot control the changing of seasons any more than we can control the ones we love. This humbling realization is, sub is subtle and made powerful by the continuous visual presence of the sun going through what appears to us on earth as its own seasonal changes. The visual metaphor in a film, such as Summer of Monica, uses what the viewer already knows about the object on the screen and places it in context of the narrative so that the mind of the viewer understands what the object represents. The object of a visual metaphor on screen represents two things, one being what the actual object is and the other being what the object means for the story. For example, the maze in the 1980 horror film The Shining is an actual hedge maze, but in the context of the story, it is also a visual metaphor for Jack's fleeting sanity. In the 1985 film Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Pee-wee's bike is his mode of transportation, but it is also a visual metaphor for his innocent balance of joy. Similarly, and yet drastically different, in the 1948 film, Bicycle Thieves, the bike is the character's mode of transportation for his job, but it is also a visual metaphor for the fragile hope in post-war Italy. When I say placed into the context of the narrative, I mean that the object of a visual metaphor is there to elevate the story. It is not the actual story, and often people don't pick up on its meaning during the first time watching a film. The visual metaphor is a tool to give the viewer another dimension of emotional complexity. The characters, the dialogue, musical score, scenery, and plot are all dimensions of the film working together to accomplish the understanding of the film's meaning or theme. When we understand a visual metaphor, our minds are doing more work than is typically asked of us. As the conceptualization discussed earlier about the thick sublime, we are not only we not only experience the object, we also seek its meaning. There are many things in films that are just objects, but when we are, but when, <laughs> but when we are presented with a visual metaphor, the object becomes much more. We ask why that particular object has picked, was picked, and why it is making me feel this way. Obviously, I have more passion about the film section of this paper because I'm reading it way better. Um, back to the paper. In the sublime, we conceptualize our human connection to nature. In film, the visual metaphor may be used to conceptualize anything about the overall theme. As long as the filmmaker knows that the audience has an understanding of what the object is and what the plot or theme of the film is, they can assume that the viewer will put in the work to connect the two. Placing the object of a visual metaphor successfully in the context of the narrative demands certain film techniques. The visual metaphor can be presented in many forms, but it typically follows the technique of the juxtaposition of two objects on the same screen or the juxtaposition of objects through a montage. Juxtaposition is the act of placing two or more objects next to each other to compare and contrast to develop a different meaning than the object would have on its own. For instance, the sun in Summer of Monica is a visual metaphor and contrast throughout the entire film. It is in juxtaposition to the characters. We often see the characters and the sun together in the same shot or in a montage as we can see in the third column above. The sun and the characters on their own have meaning, but when placed in juxtaposition to each other on screen and in the context of the narrative, the meaning develops into the change found in nature as the change found in love, all revolving around the sun. Cinematographers can juxtapose objects in the subject, the foreground and the background to demonstrate a meaning that is not found in the dialogue. The film technique of juxtaposition can explain plot points, character dynamics, and settings simply through the use of composition. Here again, we can place the active juxtaposition of a film in connection to the discussion in the last section of this paper about the thick sublime experience. We must place ourselves next to, literally or metaphorically through contemplation, 
the natural object of grandeur in order to develop the meaning of the sublime experience. We must first have the emotional effect of experiencing this great and majestic natural object. Just as in film, we must see something special about the arrangement of the objects on the screen in correlation to each other. In the sublime experience, I am in juxtaposition to the magnificent natural object, and in film, I view the juxtaposition. Both cases, however, can inspire me to complete some cognitive work to understand my initial reaction. As we've discussed, this cognitive work is the experience of the in the experience of the sublime leads to human and nature connection. The cognitive work in film leads to a deeper understanding of the plot. Furthermore, films that take advantage of the sun as a visual metaphor are able to give the viewer an experience of the sublime as well as elevate the narrative. For instance, I see the two juxtaposed objects on the screen, the sun and a human. I have a reaction for myself as I can be in a state of sublime from experience of the sun on the screen, and I am also empathizing with the characters who are having a narrative-specific sublime experience of the sun. I can only understand this visual metaphor as I have knowledge of the sun being a sublime object of nature. Visual metaphors are not just handed to you. In order to derive meaning, you have to work for them. Sometimes you have to have a bit of background knowledge as well to see the metaphor. Similar to, similarly to the experience of the thick sublime, the more you know about the object or context, the more impact the metaphor will have. Let's look at another example. In the 2021 Jane Campion film, The Power of the Dog, the sun is used as a visual metaphor for the humility in the lack of control of human desire. Each of the shots in the grid above, see the visual image grid I have included in the paper. Um, each, of the, each of the shots in the grid above features natural sunlight used to communicate the same visual metaphor to the viewer. There is something, spe something special about the characters Paul and Phil featured in the grid above. They share a connection and a desire that they must hide from the world. This film takes place in a 1920s Montana cow town, cowboy town, and both characters are presented as queer. The film never says in the dialogue that these characters are both gay men, but it is implied by the body, movement, and each character's relationship with the sun. The horizontal rows featured the horizontal rows feature shots from each act of the film. However, I would like to draw attention to the third vertical column of the grid above. In the first shot from the first act of the film, the character is positioned with his back towards us. He is partially cast in the light of the sun coming in from the window. As it fades into a shadow, the faint colors of a rainbow is placed on his shirt, his white shirt to be specific. In the next image placed vertically below, the character discusses, and this is from the second act, the shadow of a dog cast upon the mountain in front of them. The bottom in image from the third act features the rainbow spectrum of light cast against a white page of a Bible across a verse that contains the film's title. The use of sunlight in this film, the natural ray of a rainbow used to identify the character as queer is a unique approach that I have not seen before. The viewer knows that the rainbow is not CGI and that it is the product of sunlight being refracted through the glass on the window. As a result, the white light of the sun is separated into divided bands of color creating a rainbow. The viewer also knows that the visual of a rainbow is common symbol of gay pride in contemporary culture. The visual metaphor of sunlight in these three shots is clear. The use of sunlight in the rest of the film is even more subtle, but if you watch with a trained eye, you can detect that the characters Phil and Paul have meant have many occasions where their bodies are outlined by sunlight. 
see image two of horizontal row one, completely engulfed in the rays, see image one of horizontal row two, and silhouette in front of the sun, see image two of horizontal row two. In order for the visual metaphor of sunlight to work, the filmmaker must assume that the viewer has an emotional understanding of the sun and that the viewer sees something special about the sun juxtaposed to these characters. The filmmaker intends for each viewer to have a similar understanding of what this juxtaposition means in reference to the plot. As I have discussed in the previous section, the sun is one of the most magnificent objects in our solar system. We know that our lives are dependent on it. We can become horrified of this dependence if we allow ourselves to be consumed in contemplation of the sun. We can also find humility in that horror as we understand our problems to be minimal compared to its greatness. The use of sunlight in this film is simple and effective. The viewer identifies the sublimity of the sun in comparison to the horror and exhilaration <laughs> of hiding sexual desires. That's a hard one to say, exhilaration. I don't think I'm saying it right. Exhilarate. I think it's supposed to say exhilaration. The exhilaration of hiding sexual desires. Exhilaration, I don't know. The filmmaker has to assume that the viewer is going to do this work in order to benefit from the visual metaphor. Understanding the character's relationship to the sun is not critical to understanding the story. It just makes it a lot more interesting and captivating for the mind of the viewer. Referring back to Kant, he argued ultimately that the mind is solely responsible for an experience of the sublime. That the sublime experience is dependent on us realizing our cognitive limitations when confronting something about something much greater than ourselves. Clearly there needs to be an inciting object, but the grandeur and majesty are entirely up to us to develop. An experience of the sublime while watching a film seems to be in favor of this theory as we are far removed from the sun and are only experiencing it captured in a moving image. We are doing most of the conceptualization work to produce a sublime reaction. But are we presented with experiences that are beyond our cognitive abilities? Emily Brady argues in her work on the sublime titled The Sublime in Modern Philosophy, Aesthetics, Ethics, and Nature that an experience of the sublime through art is rarely possible because of the limitations of the mediums used. She is influenced by Burke and Kant, who see the sublime experience as all-consuming and unfathomable. However, she does not discuss nature captured in moving pictures. She produces four reasons as to why art is limited in producing sublime experience. Reason number one, the scale of the sublime. Two, the formlessness and unbound character. Three, the visceral disorder of dynamically sublime things. Four, physical vulnerability. These four qualities are not mandatory for sublime experience, and this is just the suggestion of one philosopher. However, I agree with Brady that these qualities are important to the sublime experience. I believe that film is an art form that offers the viewer an experience of the sublime and does not oppose any of the four qualities. Film is a unique art form for two reasons. It synthesizes two perceptions in motion and sight and... <laughs> Film is a unique art <laughs> for two reasons. It synthesizes two perceptions in motion, sight and sound, and it captures these perceptions directly from reality and seals them. Because of this, I argue, that it has the ability to induce sublime experience, especially when considering the capturing of sunlight to film. First, this scale of the sublime is captured. Thanks to film technology such as drones, cranes, and dollies, the film camera is able to capture natural splendor, like great waterfalls or gigantic canyons. And again, it not only captures these objects in their natural motion, it captures the sound they make. Considering the capturing of the sun, cameras are actually able to get closer to the sun than the average human, thus expanding its scale for us. Although the camera has a limited space of a square box to capture the formlessness and unbound quality of nature, just like the limited human eye, the camera is able to pivot to take in more of its surrounding. 
The camera is, however, limited by only two perceptions when capturing the natural environment, which limits its visceral effect. Although if only considering the sun, we are limited to two perceptions of our own, sight and feeling of sunlight on the skin. While the camera cannot provide us with the sun's warmth, we are able to empathize with the characters on the screen as they drip with sweat in the desert. This brings us to the fourth quality of the sublime. The camera cannot put us in actual physical vulnerability. But again, the sun can only incite physical vulnerability in us through our contemplation of the scientific connections and dependence we have on it. Except for when having experiences of heat exhaustion, when the sun can put us in actual danger. This experience can be empathized by the viewer as they watch a character suffering in the moving sight and sound on screen. Let's look at our final example of the sun as a sublime visual metaphor from Terrence Malick's 1978 film, Days of Heaven. In this film, the sun is used as a visual metaphor for the, human, for the humility in the insignificant actions of human beings compared to the great wrath of nature. Malick has made a name for himself as a director of realism in modern American cinema. Even though he is creating fiction and often uses a wide-angle lens to bring the natural background forward and a fisheye lens from time to time to evoke a surrealist human eye. However, he is very interested in capturing the majority of the film through the characters performing everyday actions out in the world. Field work in the sun is a particular favorite. This realism is able to capture the sound, image, and motion of human beings in the actual sun. Focusing on how it moves around their bodies, heats them up, makes them contemplate, falls, and rises behind them. See horizontal column two and three on the grid above. The film Days of Heaven follows the story of two young people in love who move from the factories of Chicago to jobs as farmhands in Texas with their sister. The couple devises a plan for the young woman to seduce and marry the owner of the farm to eventually inherit the land when he dies of a suspected fatal disease. The film begins in the dark factories of Chicago. The only light is the fiery glow of a, f oh no, fiery twice. The only light is the fiery glow of a fiery liquid metal. See horizontal column one of the grids above. The metal can be interpreted to emulate the fiery hydrogen reaction on the sun's surface. This interpretation is justified by an analysis of the use of the sun as a visual metaphor in this film. The reference to heaven in the title is to the days the characters live in bliss in the sun on the farm. Malik makes a point in this film to position the farm hand in dramatic juxtaposition to the sun. See image two of horizontal column two. Farm work is dependent entirely on sunlight. The day begins when the sun, with the sun and ends when it sets. The winter sun brings the end of the season. The characters in this film are entirely dependent on the sun. The sun gives nutrition to the crops they harvest. The sun tells them when to begin work. The sun tells them when to leave the farm for the season. Days of Heaven develops a successful cap captivation to the human relationship to the sun and the sublime. It contrasts the consistency and the majesty of the sun with the human dilemmas of love, jealousy, and murder. The characters perform vicious acts against each other, but the sun continues to rise. The sun hangs over them and represents to the characters and the viewer how limited and frustrating human life is, while at the same time minimizing the struggle and chaos of being under the sun as all other organisms. The younger sisters the younger sister narrates the film in a voiceover. She has almost no awareness of the crimes and intrigue that the adult characters have performed. She reflects on the land, lives each day with a new perspective. Her narrative explanation of what is happening in the plot between the adults is often wrong. She offers us little understanding. She is unable to comprehend the issues of the adult world. Her voiceover is intended to complement the sublimity of the natural environment in the film. She sees the world as it really is. Simply simple and chaotic and unruling.
of heaven. It should be clear that the sun is used as a metaphor for the human relation to nature and the humility of our lack of control or power on the earth. The viewer knows that the sun is the sole reason that crops grow and that the sun's, sun's changes through seasons affects the lives of those who work the land. In this section, I have discussed the use of visual metaphors in film and how the sun, because it evokes sublime experience, can be used to create deeper meaning for the narrative when juxtaposed with the characters. Part three, the psychology of the sublime sun. In this very brief section, I would like to provide a few accounts of the work that the field of psychology is doing concerning the experience of the sublime towards nature and the reaction to that experience with humility. I would like to end this paper with this research as it can demonstrate the psychological effect the juxtaposition of the sun and human beings can have on the viewer of the film. A lot of this research is concerned with the experience of being in awe of something. Being in awe and being in a state of sublime are very similar emotions. The main difference is that the sublime focuses on natural objects and has a very specific history as discussed in the first section of this paper. Burke, Kant, and Schopenhauer have specific understanding of what dictates a sublime experience, while contemporary philosophers such as Chapche and Arcangeli et al. try to expand the definition. Awe seems to be more appealing to a contemporary psychologist as it casts a wider net. What is important is that both the experience of sublime and awe share the qualities of the mind presented with vastness, grandeur, and the need for the mind to conceptualize this experience. As we have been using Shapshay's theory of thick sublime experience, our argue about sublime film compared to the work on experience of awe. In the 2007 study performed by Shayota et al. in California, psychologists performed a survey of the emotional differences between participants' experience of nature or personal accomplishment. The participants were divided into groups and asked to think of a time when they were when they either encountered a beautiful scene in nature or a time when they felt pride. The participants in the natural beauty scene reported feeling in the presence of something greater than themselves, focusing more on the present moment around them than on the conscious on the self-conscious thoughts. The participants in the pride survey reported feelings of cultural awareness, possibly suggesting that the pride memory placed them into a value of themselves in society, questioning what they have done to deserve this pride. In both scenarios, the participants was asked to develop a memory of an event from their past. This is interesting if we place it in context with the experience sublime in film. In the memory of the past events, the participant is not fully consumed by all of the perceptual components of a natural environment. They are restricted to what they retain from the experience, typically a sight, typically sight and sound, and maybe some tactile perceptions. However, even with this distance from the actual environment of nature, they were able to evoke an emotion of awe and experience a lower sense of self, which suggests that the viewer of a film, even though they are not in the actual natural environment, can still experience the sublime as it is presented to them. The films mentioned in the last section all depict characters living in pastoral environments. This phenomenon may be due to thick experiences of the sublime. We conceptualize natural environments if we are placed in them, or even if they are merely presented to us. A neurological study conducted in 2004 by Itju... The name pronunciation is not my thing. Let's skip it. In the United Kingdom, intended to see if there was a difference of intensity and brain activity between the experience of objects that typically evoke a sublime response and objects that evoke a response of beauty. The study was conducted by demonstrating to a group of participants images of grand natural landscapes found in National Geographic, such as oceans, mountains, forests, and volcanoes. 
The researchers would scan the brain of the participants as they looked at each photo and then ask them immediately following the scan to rank the image between one to five. How did each photo rate on beauty, pleasantness, and scale? While the findings in this neurological study were not able to offer a radical distinction between the experiences of beauty and the experience of the sublime, it did demonstrate that at the very least, our experience of beautiful and our experience of the sublime produced different brain activity. What I want to talk, what I want to take out of this study is to point out how it was conducted. The researchers presented the participants with photographs of real natural objects. Simply from a photograph, without being in the vicinity of the object, the viewer was able to distinguish its scale. This again may offer some insight into the sublime in film. We are offered an image of the sun as its light stretches across the Montana mountains. And even though we may be looking at a small screen on a laptop, we can conceptualize this scene into a grander understanding of nature. Finally, I would like to discuss a study conducted in 2012, let's give it a shot, by Rod, Vose, and Acker. Considering the relationship between the experience of awe and perception of time. Focusing just on the first experiment conducted, researchers attempted to find if the experience of awe expands people's perception of time. The study was conducted through the process of randomly assigning participants to watch one of two 60-second commercials, either eliciting awe or happiness. The awe-inducing video featured people encountering vast, overwhelming natural entities, such as waterfalls, whales, and space. The happiness-eliciting commercials featured rainbow confetti falling, parades, and smiling people in bright colors. After watching the video, the participants were asked to fill out a survey about personal beliefs. The survey offered random statements as well as four distinct questions about time, such as, quote, time is slipping away, and, quote, I have lots of time in which I can get things done. They were asked to rank the statements between one, agree, to seven, disagree. The results showed that participants who watched the awe commercial and demonstrated the emotional state of awe perceived time as more plentiful than the participants in the happiness condition. Stronger feeling of all correlated to greater, perceived, to greater perceived time availability. Placing this study into the context of sublimity in film. First, here again, we have a study that is taking advantage of visual stim, stimuli to evoke a sublime slash awe experience. In this study, the sublime, this stimuli, stimuli are are even moving pictures. It is also telling about the experience of oneness that the viewer can develop when presented with visuals of sublime inspiring grandeur. The lack of emphasis on time and having somewhere to be suggests that the participant sees lower self as time seems to be less prevalent as a concern. Conclusion. Section four, conclusion. The image on the first page of this paper is from the 1977 film, The Ascent, by director Larzia Shepikito. <laughs> just like, you just like scan the name and you just have to make it up. Shepikito. She's Russian. Shepikito. <sighs> The film, The Ascent, follows the trials and tribulations of war. This is from, just to remind you after um, I just had that um, psychotic fit, I'm referring to the image from the first page of this essay, and now um, th this image on this page is a different image from the same film. They, they look very similar though. So, um, the film, The Ascent, follows the trials and tribulation of war. The character featured in the image lays on his back after being captured by the invading German soldiers. He is nearly frozen to death and is suffering from a bullet wound in his leg. This shot features a close-up of his head lying back staring up at the winter sun. This is the second time the filmmaker has used this close-up shot. Earlier, the character was in the same position, lying back 
into the snow, freezing to death. The glow from the moon reflected the sun's light illuminated in his eyes. See image above on this page, this image, this new image. The Ascent is an anti-war film. It intends to demonstrate the unnecessary and gruesome human sacrifices of wartime. Often, when the characters face certain death in this snowy tundra, they look for the light of the sun. Watching these characters face traumatic challenges of both nature and man, we share the character's relief in looking up at the sun. I think this relief is purely based on a thick, sublime understanding of the images on screen in context with the narrative and my understanding of what it means to be a human being. The sun is a relief to these characters as it reminds them that there are greater things than themselves. That the pain they are in is temporal and minimal in comparison to the sun. In this paper, I argued that directors in film can use our sublime understanding of the sun and its light as a visual metaphor for human humility. The sun is considered to be the greatest object in our solar system. It is the reason humans have a relationship with nature and it is the reason for all life on earth. It is always sublime. However, we receive a thick experience of the sublime when conceptualizing the sun and reflect meaning from it into our lives. With the sun in film, the sublime can be experienced firsthand by the viewer or through empathy the viewer has for the character's experience of the sublime. The sun can be used as a visual metaphor in film to elevate the narrative or plot as it represents humility to the viewer when it is juxtaposed with characters in the film. Although the sun on the film screen is only the reflected light captured through technology, we can develop a real reaction to the sublime as the psychological studies in the last section suggests. When the sun and its light are presented to us through an intentional mise-en-scene, we can conceptualize an experience of the sublime and through this develop a deeper meaning about the themes in the film between humans, nature, and humility. Thank you for listening. <laughs>